0: We know of new methods of attack. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, comrades and companeros, welcome to yet another edition of the Fifth Column Podcast. I say yet another because I presume you've been listening for a long time. If you haven't, what on earth is wrong with you? But you're here now. Uh, Who isn't here? Uh, Camille Foster. Why? Um, I I don't know. He sent some very cryptic email. It had the phrase white privilege in it. And then we Mm -hmm. haven't heard from him since. So I am taking over the beginning bit of this and I'm here, um, with Matt Welch, not as somebody who I was on a trip with last week thought was Matt Walsh. Again, we always have to make that clear. Again, Yeah. I was sitting on a beach and they were like, why do you do a podcast with Matt Walsh? (laughs) And I was like, what? I do. You I was just like, oh, like his
1: glasses.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I like his beard. He apparently, it's. He's this, the Bob Seeger of anti trans. Uh, this person
1: who's, who's the bane of my existence, and I'm sure perfectly fine for a. Uh, crazy knuckle-dragging social conservative um he apparently was on twitter today uh like uh saying stuff as like as someone who's not a college graduate i'm really uh, you know upset about the student loans just like you and someone's like okay we finally got the conversions but uh, the difference was that he uh used the phrase smart guy as a pejorative which i oh
0: well before we introduce our guest let me also say that there is i have a doppelganger um with the exact same name and I wrote a story about it one time for the Daily Beast. Um, and the other Michael Moynan is, in fact, a neo-Nazi. Yep. Um, and he is, he is also from Massachusetts. Um, so that's also bad. And he wrote a book about Norwegian death metal, uh, which was actually very popular. It sold a lot of copies and was made into a, a, a major motion picture that was produced by my former employer, actually. And uh, that's, uh, I lived in Sweden, in the Norway, Sweden. It was enough to confuse a lot of people. But uh, I am not a neo-Nazi. Matt does love trans people, is in fact trans himself. And uh, as is our guest tonight, our first trans... Is that is that true, Matt, the note that you sent me? The Chris Dyerwald? <laughs> is that... <laughs> Oh no! It says he's from was, Wheeling. Oh, this sorry. is, this is a supposed to be I read that wrong.
1: <laughs> This wasn't released in discovery during the lawsuit. So our the text messages. So are So much still we private. can't talk
0: about. Yeah. So much we, we promise we're not to make Chris Starwell, who is now a senior <laughs> fellow at the American <laughs> Enterprise Institute, uh, was then uh, I think a the political editor, the political editor, the. Or a, a political editor. I think the right, Chris at Fox uh, News.
2: Yep, I was. I was the politics editor for the Fox News Channel. I worked at Fox for. More than ten years, and uh, th- those things are all true.
0: And Joe Biden is president because of him. He called uh, Arizona for, for, for Joe Biden. We
2: had we had the electoral votes locked at twelve eleven Avenue of the Americas, yeah. and then gave them to <laughs> Joe Biden. It was. <laughs> I want to tell you, the ca- the cash so nice, payout man. is better than this sweatshirt would indicate. I'm I keeping a low key. We didn't located. want to say anything, but
0: yeah, yeah, I wish it was a video podcast. But uh, Chris also. Uh, wrote a book, uh, a very good book, by the way, yeah. Matt and I have discussed it. And Matt actually did a long C-SPAN interview with Chris, which you should go watch, um, uh, called Broken News, with the subtitle Why the Media Rage Machine Divines America and How to Fight Back. Why don't Matt Welch, why don't we start there? Should we talk about that? Why the news is broken? Because that's kind of what we talk about all the time in this podcast. So I want to know why Chris Steierwald thinks the news is broken and I know and it's also, a big, big question but uh let's be can-
1: clear people he also um was fired because of the aforementioned uh yes. uh, uh yep. calling of Arizona early so we'll get to that too that's definitely- I was just laid
0: off and I think the news is broken now too yeah. so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> definitely in the news and he writes about it a bit in his book too but let's 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 broaden that thesis go Chris
0: go Chris why is it broken
1: well um I don't know what all has come out
2: in all of the filings. Uh, I, I rely on my friends to send me the, uh, the appropriate passages from the lawsuit. So I don't know which part of what is out. Uh, but I will say this, um, and I'll speak for uh, Bill Salmon, my old boss, and for uh, the other uh, guys and gals on the uh, decision desk. It feels really good to be vindicated in this way. Uh, and it feels really you know we knew that we were uh isolated inside the company uh at that time, but we did not know how isolated we were, and we didn 't know the pressure that was being applied internally against us and it was uh freaky to read some of it uh and it but ultimately very gratifying um because uh, you know look, I am not uh I do not hold myself out and I try to make it clear in the book. I'm guilty of everything that I point out as problems to one degree or another in my life. I have made all of the mistakes that I talk about in the book and all of the trends that are, uh, that, that I decry in the book. So I don't hold myself out as the exemplar, but, um, you know, doing the, the basics, right. Uh, that should be. I guess the corniest way, the corniest possible way that I can put it is that to maintain trust between the audience and the and the news outlet, there has to be protection for people who are doing their jobs, right? And if you're doing the job that you are given to do and you're doing it, I will point out very well um, that there should be protections for those folks because – that's how you keep the trust long-term. And I think what those filings reveal and what I read about at Fox are people making short-term decisions to try to maintain artificial sugar high levels of viewership from an election season after the election was over and not being willing to suffer the consequences of being a news organization. And I, I could go on about it, but I would just say, I think um, the there is no, and oh, I, I said I would be very corny, but this will mm-hmm. be even cornier. Mm-hmm. There's no American journalism without Americanism. And if what you're doing is not good for the country, uh, and if what you're doing is not helpful, then you can't do it. And that requires a vocational code that people have to maintain, even when it's bad for business.
0: I mean, the fifth column is very bad for America. We, we know that. It always <laughs> literally has the title, and yeah, it really is. We are behind enemy lines, causing uh, havoc. But you know, you say to please the audience and and the sugar high and the empty calories, but it's also to please your political masters too. Because what comes out when you talk about Bill Salmon, um, who's a very good journalist, uh, was previously at the Washington Times, and then um, was he the Examiner too at yep, one point? That's where we. That's
2: where we first worked together. Yeah,
0: and then and Fox News. Um, you know, there is a quote, I don't know if it's from a text message or an email exchange from Rupert Murdoch saying, maybe we should fire Bill Salmon, uh, because the Trump people will like that. And that's exactly what happened, isn't it?
2: I, I, I don't know who said what in which message to whom, but it, it was made clear. Uh, uh, there was no, no doubt as to, uh, why Bill uh, and I were getting canned, right? Yeah. And the, it the, it it becomes and it becomes very obvious. And look, I should say, <clears throat> I uh, have a great job. I have five great jobs, or whatever. Uh, <laughs> and I love. Uh, I'm at News Nation now, and that's great. And I really love doing that. Fabulous, AEI, fabulous, The Dispatch, great, all of that, great. Fox didn't owe me a job, and it's also true that it was probably in Fox's business interest to fire me, right? It was probably, a, at least on a short-term basis, a, a financially correct, you know, we heard, uh, we read about um, Tucker Carlson talking about the stock price going down and what people were saying. You know, obviously, and you can tell from the communications, if the same people who, as you say, were trying to please their political masters could have done away with Donald Trump, And gotten away with it, they would have done that, right? Trump is angry now uh, because of what he's reading. They said uh, you can go read. He he posts his truth. It's a post truth truth at Truth Social, (laughs) and you and he's very angry uh, that they didn't believe him, and very angry that uh, they were plotting against
1: him, and they didn't believe him privately, which is what has come out. So I I should quickly backfill. We're talking about. Dominion, who does voting machines, they have a lawsuit, a big defamation lawsuit against Fox, and it's really hard to win defamation lawsuits in America, which I think is appropriate. Rick, uh, Ron DeSantis disagrees with me about that, um, which is pretty interesting. Like Ron DeSantis gets his way, Fox loses, which is. By not the way, good do you, do you realize DeSantis.
0: that one of the women that was on that panel with me and Ron DeSantis uh, was a, law- a defamation lawyer who is representing Dominion.
1: Oh, That's pretty, pretty interesting. Pretty so, interesting, right? So yeah. what we're what we're talking about here are some of the leaks that have come out last week and this week about internal com- communications, uh, especially uh, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, and Sean Hannity. Sean Hannity, um, who's mentioned a few times in your book,
0: as is but, Tucker. By the way, I have to say, Matt, that that they those all those people you met, uh, mentioned, um, there's enough to go on just on those people to be very very depressed about um what they were up to but they're not even close to being the worst it's uh, Lou Dobbs Maria Bart, well, do I don't even know. Bart Yeah, some fake Italian name. <laughs> <Which the> Bart <Bartaroma.
1: laughs> Big hire at Fox Business. I'm just going to get this in because I'm never going to have another opportunity to say this. But when we did The Independence, which was the best television program in the history of, mm-hmm. of television. There were no texts
0: about that, actually, Matt. There was no mention uh, of The Independence in those. No, texts. <laughs> but I'm going to shoehorn
1: it in, which is they hired Maria. And I like Maria, and I'm being mean now, but why not? Um, uh, they hired her for at great expense. She's the money honey uh, uh, before. And we we stomped her like a grape in the ratings. Uh, and then got canceled. Yeah. So Maria, is that right? that's yeah. true. I mean, when we were there, yeah, we in demo. I mean, and but I think also in overall. But in, in the twenty-five narrow, to fifty-four demo. demo, yes, <laughs> it's very important. Did you do a lot of cleavage, or what was the? How do you? <laughs> Camille showed a little leg, <laughs> uh, and that well, you really. you do what it takes. You do what it takes. Yeah. It was why, dip- you,
0: why was Camille always wearing later hose very odd
1: choice? <laughs> Just you know, it's it's what you're going to do. So anyways, yeah, the that's the he Always tuned it. Yeah. That is the backdrop to what we're talking about. And it's uh, fascinating to hear some of those uh, those texts. I mean, they're literally talking about firing bills. Sean Hannity, who uh, broadcasted Casey SB in Santa Barbara in the same complex where I worked at the student newspaper. It was kind of controversial at the time. Uh, we stuck up for his controversialness, even though he's equating, like, uh, you know, gay marriage to bestiality or whatever was the offense. No, I'm not making that up. It's a different uh, time. Different times in the 80s, whatever. People do stuff. Um, but uh, when Sean Hannity is saying things like this... Uh, Uh, This is this is after a a reporter named uh, Heinrich. Uh, I can't see Heinrich
2: said Jackie. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, So she had done a little fact check about one of the crazy things that were being said about the election post election um, and uh, and was was uh, critiquing uh, the way that the Trump team was talking about it. And so, uh, uh, first of all, uh, uh, Tucker Carlson uh, texts Hannity, please get her fired. Seriously. (laughs) What the fuck? I'm actually shocked. It needs to stop immediately. Like tonight, it's measurably hurting the company. Please get her fired, by the way. It's like, this is cancel culture. If Tucker Carlson says a damn thing about cancel culture ever again, the please get her fired seriously for doing her job. And then Hannity comes in and says, I'm three strikes. Uh, uh, Wallace shit debate. That's Chris Wallace. Uh, election night, a disaster. That's you, Chris Dyerwald. Um, it. now it's actually America, but go ahead. Now, <laughs> this BS. Nope. Not gonna fly. And then he says this, and I want to get your just immediate reaction to this part of it, uh, Chris. Um, uh, he, he just has a character reference. He says, did I mention Cavuto? As like, we all know that Neil Cavuto is a problem. Uh, I worked in the same building um, for Fox and I uh, I am not, I will never speak anything out of school about Fox and never have. And they know that perfectly well. Um, And I will say this about Neil Cavuto in my experience, maybe yours is different, Chris, man has integrity and he's great at his job. And and he's a peach. He's
2: just a peach of a guy. He's just a good guy who tries to do a good job. And, you know, um, this will see, this will sound odd, Um, but let me offer a defense of Sean Hannity in this way. Sean Hannity is a partisan. He is a Republican. He's not a conservative. He's a Republican. Mm -hmm. If Mitt Romney was president, he would be saying every day, what a great job Mitt Romney was doing because Sean and maybe it's negative partisanship. Uh, but he's a Republican, right? He loved George Bush. Uh, then he loved Donald Trump. He that's, that's who he is. And no one could watch 30 seconds of Sean Hannity's telecast and not understand that this was for not just a point of view, but for a party. And he, for years, did battle with the news division, right? Um, and he, for years, fought against the news division. Uh, his uh, the, the feelings that he had for Chris Wallace, I am sure, I know, did not start there, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> So that is an open kind of hostility that you can sort of deal with, right? That you can sort of say, okay, I see it. There it is. You are a partisan. You have a point of view. And our job is to try to not be that way. But, you know, the problem with Carlson here is he's, well, I'm not this and I'm not that. I'm not a GOPer. I'm just here for every man. I'm just here for the people. I'm just the tribune of the people. And uh, you're getting screwed over and sold out by elites all of the time. And you are being victimized. You helpless people are being victimized by elites for him to have those kinds of conversations about what to tell people and when to tell people. And for goodness sakes to fire Jackie Heinrichs, who was trying, you know what she was doing? That, that tweet was a tweet from Trump specifically about accusing dominion of wrongdoing Hmm. and so she did the correct journalistic thing which is to say okay the president of the united states is is making a a strong claim uh about uh, all of this stuff so she went and truth squatted that and then she took it down later i didn't talk to her about it i have no idea how that happened but i doubt that she just said no on second thought i'll take it down and that's a great encapsulation of screwed up priorities and It is too bad for America that Roger Ailes was such a broken person and that personally he was so deficient because I can promise you this, that at no point in the Roger Ailes uh, reign would the three primetime anchors have been texting with each other uh, because he would have made sure they hated each other because he was a big scorpions (laughs) in a bottle kind of management guy, but also the idea that they would be essentially collectively bargaining with Roger would have been absolutely out of the question, right? Here's what I want you to do to the news division because I don't like it. Absolutely not. There'd be no way that you would do that. And the other thing that the previous model had, would back under the old fair and balanced. Look, I understand why people of the left and I understand why a lot of people did not uh, have a lot of respect for the Fox News journalism. I got it, uh, and I even understand when people say that people like Chris Wallace or me or Brett Bay or whatever that, that were hood ornaments and that all of that stuff. I hear you, but it was at least in the interest of Fox' previous business model to have some solidity there, right? To have something there to point to and say, hey, now, wait a minute. Say what you will, but here's Chris Wallace's tough interview on Fox News Sunday. Here's our great decision desk. Here's the quality of the packages on Special Report to point to this wholesome stuff. And over time, what I watched happen was that the serving of vegetables, the the food pyramid got screwed up, right? (laughs) And the space on the plate for the vegetables got smaller and smaller and smaller. And then finally, somebody asked the obvious question. Why do we bother having these vegetables at all? People don't like them. So why
1: don't we just give the people what they want? Was there uh, 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 just on that quickly? Um, was it the 2012 election when Megyn Kelly famously like took the camera crew into? I think it was the decision desk because someone else was saying, no, 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 really. Um, uh, Romney's going to win. I, I maybe even have the year. No, that was
2: that was no, that was brother Carl Rove, uh, my friend uh, who um had some questions about our call in Ohio in 2012 because it was setting up for uh, it meant Josh Mandel was going to lose in Ohio. That was the old Josh Mandel. That was neoconservative Josh Mandel uh, <laughs> before burning hundred dollar bills in a stairwell and telling you to buy Bitcoin, Josh Mandel.
0: But the he contains
2: multitudes. <laughs> he does. He is he is a man of parts. Um, but the that call in Ohio was the. The beginning of what would be the end for Romney. And by the way, none of the Barack Obama outperformed expectations in 2012. He did better than expected. So I understand why there was a little whatever. And Rove asked about it. And in those days, Roger knew, well, if there's questions about it, let's air it out. Let's talk about it. Okay. And Megyn Kelly said, I'll go back and talk to him. So she came back and talked to me and she talked to Arnon Mishkin, uh, then known as the Great Mishkini, now known as Q Arnon, uh, that came back and said, "Okay, what's the story on the call?" We explained the call. We talked about it. We explained where the votes were, why it wasn't a very normal thing. And ah, there you have it. Moving on, going on. Now, of course, what we couldn't say in that interview, by the way, was wait ten minutes and we're going to call Florida, and then you're really going to be unhappy. Uh, <laughs> but the that was. It is it, by no means unusual for people to be upset with the call, right? It's totally normal for people not to like the call. Um, in 2018, when we had, thanks to Rupert Murdoch, uh, the best new uh, election forecasting system in the universe, right, uh, we partnered with the Associated Press and the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago uh, to, for the what we call the Fox News voter analysis, which is, by the way, what made it possible for the Associated Press and Fox to be able to call a, to call Arizona before the competition. That's why we were able to do that, uh, other than the fact that we're awesome. Uh, but the because of that, we were able to forecast to project the Democrats would take control of the House first in 2018. And guess what? Republicans hated it, but Democrats hated it, too, because they accused us of trying to suppress votes in California by forecasting the control of the House uh, before it came out. So I was very well accustomed to going into 2020, very well accustomed to people being unhappy with our forecasts. What I was not ready for was the degree to which people would go along with what Donald Trump was trying to do. We knew what Donald Trump was going to try to do. We knew he was going to try to steal the election. We knew that he, he did it out in the open, right? I'm going to rob that bank, he said. That one over there at noon on Friday. That's what I'm going to do. And I heard him and I thought, well, yeah, I mean, you know, some people are going to believe you, but it's an election and you're probably going to lose by a decent amount. So, okay, whatever. Cool, cool story. What I did not expect would be the number of Republicans who knew better, and came in alongside him out of fear of alienating the audience. That's inside the building and outside the building. But I un- I did not underestimate the percentage of people who would sincerely believe Trump. What I failed to appreciate would be the number of people who would willingly abet him, even though they knew that it was wicked.
0: This is something you see all the time, though, isn't it? I mean, not only the Fox News, I mean, Matt points out, some of these texts from Tucker Carlson and uh, Sean Hannity and people saying, let's do something about uh, Jackie Heinrich, right? Uh, uh, yeah, Jackie you know, Heinrich. Doing, doing yep. some um, reporting, actual reporting and fact-checking. Uh, but at the same time, in, in, in the, the same kind of, you know, passel of papers and documents, you find the opposite text messages from people saying, these people are fucking crazy. Yep, right? Yeah. Rudy Giuliani is insane. Uh, Sidney Powell is mentally ill. Yeah, None of this Tucker, stuff is true. Especially. Yeah. And from Tucker. And, and so they're vastly. But so, you know, it's, it's interesting because it reminded me of the number of Republicans that I had talked to during the Trump years who told me that nobody on the Hill had any respect for Trump. Um, everyone hated him. Uh, everyone w- was hoping that he would disappear in 2020. Oh, my gosh. And everyone was afraid of him at the same time. I and mean, you have this thing, the public facing You know, Fox News, public facing Republicans in the House, everybody, you know, I mean, Steve Bannon was the only one that I talked to who was on the record saying this guy is a psycho and an idiot and I want him to win. And he also told me he also told me about, you know, uh, was it three, three weeks before the election on camera that there's no way that Donald Trump is ever going to concede. And straight up, he's like, that's not going to happen. And, you know, he's like, you heard it here first, and he was right. But so th- this stuff is, is it's an amazing moment in history where there's, you know, it's almost Stalinist in the sense, or any authoritarian regime, everybody close to the leader um, is lying and pretending that they agree with the policies. But as opposed to being afraid of just the leader in the in the case of Fox News, they're afraid of, afraid of the public. They're afraid of the leader's fans. I mean, it's a very, I mean, is there any precedent for this in in modern american political history
2: well look i i think this is a matter of degrees right yeah um so there's always some degree of how many democrats who thought that bill clinton was a really vile person would say off camera well you know i mean my gosh a 21 year old intern and a you know a cuban cigar this is you discuss, what do you you know you can't do that yeah. and then in public which, those cigars are illegal Exactly, those that it's it's a Treasury Department <laughs> yes, issue. Exactly, <laughs> um,
1: OFAC. That's Can't happen. Exactly.
2: But the, the the it's always a degree that, and this is, I want to come back just to the that distinction between partisans and analysts, between journalists and partisans. So I don't care particularly. What Republicans or Democrats think about politics, because I know what they have to say, right? They have to say, and now there's the media thing about the Joe Manchin effect, uh, which is the most, the best way to be on TV or to be famous in Washington is to be dumping on your own team. That's the Mm quick, the quickest path is even a Democrat even a Republican says this is too much. And you're like who? You're like oh, Manchin. Like even a Republican. Oh well, it was uh Susan Collins. Okay, got it. All right, stipulated.
0: What well, we used to call Fox News Democrats, right? So, yeah. right. <laughs>
2: right. And 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 now the, and now there are MSNBC Republicans.
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: And so I don't particularly care what partisans say uh, about much of anything, unless you have you know a real cry of conscience and somebody somebody. When Mitch McConnell breaks from the Republican orthodoxy, I pay attention. Or if Nancy Pelosi, you're okay, that's a little different. But generally speaking, who cares? The difference becomes what is the job of an opinion journalist, right? So if the job of an opinion journalist is just to get a party in power or just to affirm, the points of view of one person, then they're indistinguishable from partisans because the difference is supposed to be that you can count on these, you know, the, I always say the difference between the news and entertainment is that in the news, sometimes we have to tell you what you don't want to hear, right? Uh, We can tell you, tell it to you with love. We can tell it to you in a, in a, in a kindly loving way, but we have to tell you ultimately true things. Even opinion journalists have to do that. Right. Um, And you know, what, Charles Crowdhammer, who uh, I had the, the very good fortune uh, to have as a friend and to get to watch him work. Charles was exceptionally good at breaking bad news to his fellow Republicans, right? Like, I'm going to let you in on this. I'm going to let you know how it is. And would even give him a little context for why it might be OK in the future. But he was able to be clear eyed with them. And in the book, I talk about um, the media scholar Andre Muir coined the phrase, uh, Post journalism. And what we had in the anomalous period from, let's say, the end of the Second World War until the 1990s, we had a system, and it, this is substantially true before that, but the system that we knew and that people are oddly nostalgic for, we can talk about more about how odd mm-hmm. that is, but the old system was we have information and we make money because you want that information. You want to know what time Die Hard 2, Die Hard with a Vengeance will be screening at the Ohio Valley Mall Cinema. You want to know who won the game. You want to know what the stock prices are. You want to know where you can buy a slightly damaged credenza. Those are the things that you want to know. And we have that information, and you will subscribe, and you will look at these ads for mattresses in order to get that information. And when you broke that and all of the information that anybody could ever want about anything becomes free, right? All of the basic information about life, about what's what's the weather, what's the traffic, what's the sports, all that jazz, is free and basically ad free, and you can't even miss it. You know, you go to pump gas, and the the damn monitor comes on, and it's like, but what about Mario uh, uh healthy living tips? I don't know Shell Gas. Maybe I just wanted to pump gasoline here, <laughs> um, but when you cha- when you bro- when you broke the top down relationship in the news business it was replaced with a bottom up relationship in which instead of giving people information now people were sharing their opinions and beliefs with the outlet and the outlet was mirroring it back to them and affirming it back to them to build deeper and deeper and stronger and stronger emotional and cultural and tribal connections i used to hear from people i would be in airports and people would say to me oh we watch you on fox all the time we're big supporters And I wanted to say, ah, you know, it's a multinational, multi-billion dollar corporation uh, uh, supporter. I, you know, we're not like renegades uh, doing a pirate radio station on a garbage scow in the Hudson River, right? Well, this is a, this is big business. And, but that sort of sense of belonging and, and place uh, and validation substantially came to take the place of that informational issue.
0: Did you not think of that before, Chris? I, I mean, I know that this, you probably started thinking about this in a much different and deeper way um, as you left Fox News, but you were jo- joining Fox News. You were not joining the PBS News Hour. When people came and said that to you, that couldn't have surprised you in any way.
2: Well, it, well, it did surprise me. Uh, he, uh, here's my experience. When I came to Fox, and uh, Bill Salmon had gone over to be the managing editor, and then uh, I had actually edited him at the Examiner, and then he brought me over. And I will promise you this, that in the Washington Bureau of Fox News, um, I would put the work of the reporters and producers there up against any television network in Washington at the time, right? Uh, in ter- And by the way, as you guys both know, a variety of opinions off-camera from the off-camera staff and the on-camera staff – uh, and it felt wholesome and normal, right? It did not feel abnormal. It did not feel when people said, "Oh, it's state television and it's this and it's that and the other thing That did not comport with my experience now, I overestimated the importance of our division, and I overestimated the importance of what we were doing because the human ego is a remarkable thing um and I did not understand what was happening. Twenty In 2016, I came in 2010. In 2016, uh, by the time Roger did himself in, um, you could feel different pressures and the, the changes that were happening. But uh, after that, the long struggle to maintain autonomy for the news division and to maintain that wholesome approach – Uh, definitely got harder, right? And you could see it from the outside. The number of hours in the day of news programming kept going down, and the number of hours of opinion programming kept going up. And the standards kept slipping, and you could see it slipping here and slipping there. I don't have a great answer for why I was optimistic that we were going to turn it around. I don't have a great, other than my own desires and that I probably allowed my own wishes to occlude uh, a more clear eyed, uh, appreciation of what was going to happen. But I really believed that after the 2020 election, I had great relief attached to the 2020 election because what I thought was going to happen was that the, uh, unsettling trends that I had seen in the network and the direction that had unnerved me that with Trump out of office and that, that, Wholesome and important reforms would be made and that the news division would be reempowered and that good stuff would happen. And I was probably
1: naive to think it, but maybe you can understand why I wanted it to be true. You talk uh, about just now um, the kind of the degeneration of media to become a kind of uh, ideological or partisan uh, comfort food. Um, it protects you. It's an envelope. It, it it tells you that you're on the smart team. And those people over there are trying to ruin America. And there's not a lot of space for dissonance. And this comes up a lot in the texts. People are, are who are uh, kind of against the news division and what you guys did are always talking in terms of like trust. You know, we we have this trust with the, with the audience. And so we can't disrupt that by telling them the, the truth. <laughs> they say the trust. They don't say the truth part uh, precisely in that sense. But one thing that you say in your book, which I really appreciated um, and which might seem a little counterintuitive for those who are listening to a podcast that does a lot of media criticism that is interviewing someone who wrote a book about the media is that um, you think media criticism is a big part of that problem that I just described. Can you talk about that? Uh, Lord,
2: yes. Um, The, I think my joke is that uh, media criticism is like asbestos abatement um, it's hazardous uh, you need special equipment and you should probably leave it to the professionals uh, a lot of what passes as as news coverage today or news analysis today is media criticism which is just absolutely um, a diversionary tactic so we'll take the the clearest kind of example Donald Trump you know clubs a baby harp seal to death uh, in the Rose Garden. And, and that again, and then the New York Times says that it was a, uh, a different kind of seal says it was a, they got the seal wrong, right? And they put it was a seal on the endangered species list. So the response would reliably come from, uh, from analysts. Oh, well, sure. Trump clubbed the seal, but you know what? The New York Times is lying about it. This is why people don't trust the press. And this is why Donald Trump is president. You're like, Wait, what? I'm sorry. What? Uh, where did that come from? And by the way, how many hours a day, my old joke, and you mentioned Lou Dobbs, uh, my old joke inside the company was there needs to be a channel that's called CNN Fox and another channel that's called Fox CNN, <laughs> in which like Mystery Science Theater 3000, personalities from the networks, just watch the ongoing stream. Of the other network and talk about how terrible it is, right? You I mean, that's this? what CNN
0: is, isn't it? Right. I mean,
2: <laughs> Brian Stelter, Brian Stelter had a show on CNN that was a show about Fox on CNN. Did you hear what Fox did today? You'll never believe the terrible things. But here's the problem. Nobody cares and it doesn't matter, right? It's totally it's it is affirming blather when Fox and Friends attacks Don Lemon And Don Lemon attacks Fox and Friends. Nobody listens and nobody cares. It just is more affirming pap for each side. And much like, you know, look, we have this is uh, symptomatic of a larger problem with this kind of deep negative partisanship that we have in America today. And the media is a driver of it. And it is also uh, uh, driven by it, which is nobody wants to police their own side. Right. Nobody wants to nobody wants to be the one that says, okay, guys, we're, you know, you screwed this one up. This is a mistake. Um, I heard two guys um, in a sitting, having lunch at a bar in Washington. And I heard two guys, they were talking and they were uh, affluent uh, white individuals. uh, And they, it was the day after the state of the union. And one said, uh, you know, the way I look at it, there's, uh, you know, there aren't really two parties in America anymore the Republicans are crazy, uh, but led by corrupt people. And the Democrats are well-intentioned, but sometimes, you know, they make some mistakes. And I said, guys, I have to, I have to interrupt. and I'm very <laughs> sorry to interrupt your lunch. But what do you think two guys sitting in a bar having lunch outside of Scranton today— Think about the Democratic Party. Do you think they would agree with your assessment about the Democratic Party, that well-intentioned, or would they talk about Hunter Biden's laptop and would they talk about the corruption of the media? What would they say? And so we have a media problem in which the media criticism tends to go left to right and right to left and therefore is ignored by its targets because none of it is the truth told in love it is all it it, and in the book i talk a lot about you know the idea of the fake tough question if i come on your podcast and you say won't you admit it admit it west virginia stinks it's the worst state in america and uh, why won't you why won't you acknowledge and read off a bunch of statistics that West Virginia, you know, the unofficial motto of West Virginia, always 48th to 49th is thank God for Mississippi. And so <laughs> if you said, look at all of these things, it's wrong with West Virginia. West Virginia is the worst state in the union. Is that a tough question? No, no. It's a super easy question. And it's good for the asker and the asky because you get to look like you're being tough with me because I'm from the other team and you get to rough me up and say how bad I am. And then I get to be A, a victim, and then B, get to say whatever I want, because you haven't held me accountable in any way. You've just said a bunch of mean things to me. And then I'm able to say, well, let me tell you something about the state that saved the union. And let me tell you something about the 35th star. And then I can say my little thing, and everybody gets gets what they want, it's like Twitter, right? Everybody gets what they want and then goes back to their tribe and says, boy, those guys are the worst. You really showed them.
0: But you just said it, didn't you? Everybody gets what they want. Right. This is what people want, isn't it? It's
2: demand. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. That's the, the as I, as I uh, traveled, as uh, West Virginia Senator Jennings, Rand, Jennings Randolph would say, across the breadth and width of this great nation, uh, I... Get the same question every time. I'm very encouraged by the success of this book for a lot of reasons, uh, including increasing the chance that my children will be able to get in the, uh, go to the colleges that they can get into. Uh, I'm, I'm very pleased about a lot of things about it. But the thing that pleases me most is that I get to see a lot of Democrats and a lot of Republicans and a lot of left and a lot of right because people know that it's broken and that we're in a screwed up situation. And then what do they say? OK, well, what are we going to do? You point out everything that's wrong with it. What are we going to do? And I hate to say it. But until individual, like this is a, a this is a demand problem, right, that can only be truly addressed with a demand solution. There is a lot and, and it is a noetic problem in that way. But there is a lot that can be done, and I hope this book is a little tiny molecule of doing it, but a lot that can be done to encourage better. More I know the corn factor is high, but more patriotic uh decency among people, there are a lot of things that you or I any of us could do that we know would be get a lot of attention, would be salacious, would be whatever, but even beyond being outside of journalistic ethics, it would be bad, right It would hurt people, it would make life worse, it would not be an acceptable way to make a living it would be uh inappropriate, and I think that awareness has to continue to grow. But the other thing is people just have to understand that, you know, if I may, um, I use the, I believe it's in the book, uh, the example of the McRib and I don't know whether you gentlemen celebrate McRib season in the autumn. Uh, but,
0: uh, there was such a thing, but I will, I will celebrate now.
2: Every fall, the good people at McDonald's return, the McRib, which is a pressed sausage product uh, that for some reason is shaped like ribs without the bones. I don't know what yeah. that seems like mm-hmm. an unnecessary exercise. step. delicious. That. But yeah. whatever, it's fine. And if I want to, as I do with my sons every autumn, eat a McRib, and you have to do it the correct way, you have to eat it on the hood of your car in a McDonald's parking lot, because you do not want it to congeal. You do not want that mm. to set, right? You want to Matt, fire Matt, that. Matt, he, he's
0: from West Virginia, right? Is I that, think so. I think so. It's okay. trending. Okay. Yeah. You <laughs> wanna,
2: you're going to want to fire that one down while it's still warm. Now, if I do that. On the hood of your El Camino. Oh, don't you wish I, I wish if I had an El Camino, I wouldn't be talking to you guys. I'd be cruising, man. I'd be, I'd
0: be doing donuts in the parking lot. Exactly. I'd be
2: out there to uh, uh, talk about a long ago story, Bill Clinton touring a AstroTurf factory. And he uh, pointed out that he used to have AstroTurf in the bed of his El Camino. And he said, you know what that's good for? And you could just see the people around him like, Oh my God. Did oh, he really no. say that? Yeah, he really did. He really because did. Because it's actually
0: not good for that at all. It's very uncomfortable. No, it's well, maybe it's yeah. a
2: traction issue. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I, it depends on, I, I, I don't know what he was doing. It's I don't know what the, the, burns, the man Jesus. from hope. Yeah, I yeah. don't know what it was. I don't know what it was about. But anyway, the, if I have a McRib every single day, as long as you don't have to watch me do it, it does not hurt you, right? If you have to watch me do it, then you're going to need therapy. But if you don't have to watch me do it, it doesn't hurt you. My bad diet doesn't hurt you. But if I have a bad media diet, it does hurt you. And it is a fundamentally unloving thing. It's a fundamentally, and I say this advisedly, an American thing to do because it's a dispatriotic thing. Because what you're doing is making, I would be making myself less equipped to be a partner to you and other people in trying to sustain self-government for this country. And the way that you get to the authoritarianism that creeps in, the way that you get to these bad things is that you allow people – that people become so accustomed and numbed out to thinking of people different from them as human and decent and worthwhile. And we have to – the way that we have dealt with the obesity epidemic – I hate that word for it – but the obesity problem in America, we've tried a lot of things. But the only thing that works, right – is to talk about it and keep saying it and keep talking about it and talking about it. It's annoying to talk about. But now people know about it in a way that they did not before. And I'm afraid that's about all that there is to do when it comes to the problem in the news business. So, I mean, that
0: at
1: eating yeah. McRibs. I mean, yeah. that's just one, yeah. Yeah. Solve the problem. Here. In saying I was, prom- I was promised McRibs for coming on this podcast. Yeah. That was the package.
0: <laughs> well, what would you say to people? I mean, there's been a, you know, a kind of instinct amongst a lot of people. Um, to say that those bad instincts of news consumers must be controlled by people in Aww. tech companies, whether it might... So, Alex Jones, for instance. I interviewed Alex Jones. I was the first person to actually visit his studio before Megyn Kelly. And they gave uh, her a lot of shit and nobody cared for what I did, which is amazing. <laughs> well,
2: if I, I want to tell you, if I would have known, I would have cared. I would have...
0: It's still out there. Um, and, you know, that was before the election. It was, I guess... Yeah, it was it was in right before Trump was elected and or maybe right after. But but, you know, I went down there and I talked to him and then Megyn Kelly does this thing and everyone freaks out and says, why are you giving this person a platform? platforming is became, you know, a word. It was replaced interviewing. are you platforming this person? It's like, well, he's a man of influence, and you should talk to him and understand. And the only reason you know that he's a crazy person is someone previously had, quote-unquote, platformed him. But, you know, Alex Jones is the easy one, right? I mean, it's kind of like the ACLU in Skokie. It's like, no, no, that's the tough case, is to have a bunch of fucking psycho-Nazis walking through a neighborhood of Holocaust survivors. You do have to defend those people, and Frank Collin and these nutcases, But... Alex Jones is the one that was so easy for everyone to say, well, yeah, they got rid of him on every platform, you know, ruined his idiotic supplements business and the rest of it. And I have um, literally no love for Alex Jones. I mean, there are people that make excuses for him and say, well, you know, he does break none, zero for me. But when that kind of thing started happening, I started getting a bit concerned because people were coming to the same conclusions that Chris Steierwald was coming to and saying there's a lot of bad stuff out there, a lot of McRibs. And maybe even worse than McRibs, people are eating arsenic. Um, And that's Alex Jones and all these other people. And we need to fight. And then, of course, um, misinformation and disinformation oh, became two very, very popular words, which, look, they sound kind of benign. It's the People's Democratic Republic of Korea. People don't like misinformation. People don't like disinformation. So allow us to fight it. OK, go nuts. But the way you fight that it seems to me... To um, be a little too open-ended and um, people are really, uh, you know, when Elon came back to take over, came to take over Twitter, the the conversation for about a month was like, he's letting these people back on this platform, which I thought was so bizarre. All these journalists were saying this. These people are going to be allowed to speak. And you know what? They were and no one listened. No one really. No one was listening to a lot of these psychos, um, and I, so I don't know what what you make of this, or if you think that there is, you know, good intentions there wrongly implemented, or that you know, not a bad idea.
2: Uh, oh, bad idea. Uh, ba- um, Molly Jong Fast wrote a piece recently in which she said that you can't treat Ron DeSantis like a regular Republican. He represents a different kind of threat and therefore must be covered. He, it's the same Trump argument, right? Yeah. Uh, this is the one that, um, why am I drawing a blank on the New York Times, former media columnist, um, but wrote the piece in August of 2016 about Trump that basically gave the permission slip to reporters to cover Trump in a way that they wouldn't cover other people because mm-hmm. he, because, we, and the, remember the the companion word to platform is legitimize. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're legitimizing. You can't legitimize him by covering him in this normal way. Now, by the way, part of that points to the wrong ways in which coverage worked in the past, because it was supposed to be, it was it was cozy, right? It was supposed to be this cozy relationship with people who are deemed to be okay. And now you can't have this cozy relationship. You can't do it. And it points to problems in both directions, with the prior coziness, but also with the idea— and. Starting with the press side of it, journalists consistently overestimate their influence, right? Mm
0: -hmm. That's correct.
2: We're going to stop Donald Trump. No. Actually, what you'll do when you try to stop Donald Trump will be strengthen Donald Trump. When you throw the rule book out the window to fight Donald Trump, what you're going to find out is people already don't trust you, and they already don't like you. And the only thing that people who might vote for Donald Trump, persuadable Trump voters— will take from the New York times hating Donald Trump is that Trump is probably onto something, right? That is, that is a, it to his benefit, not to his detriment. If Molly Jongfast wants to make sure that Ron DeSantis is the Republican nominee, she should get every news outlet to attack him constantly and true squad him constantly because it will protect him from even the smallest amount of accountability because he'll be able to say all of this is out. Um, the pseudoscientific phrases, misinformation and disinformation, invite people to believe that these are taxonomic terms that can be used to define specific things, right? So we know that knowing falsehoods put forward to distort people's understanding, okay, that's disinformation, right? You can say that if uh, you, somebody puts out the wrong date for the election uh, and says that knowingly, okay. That's what it is. But so quickly, so quickly, you get into the subjective space of news judgment and opinion and speech, right? You get there instantaneously. The things that uh, recently I saw there's a misinformation clearinghouse in Britain that got money from the United <laughs> States State Department
0: it and attacked it, Matt Welch's
2: magazine. That's right. And on the list, and I was like, Well, what's on the what's on the misinformation list? And it's like Reason magazine? (laughs) Really? Reason? The, uh, the, uh,
0: they love drugs too much.
2: I, I was, I was going to say the 500th, uh, decriminalization article is the one that finally took them <laughs> over the top. They're like, no, they That's must a be stopped. and yeah. to you, Re- sir. Yeah. Res- restore the war on drugs. Stop yeah. Reason Magazine. But the, <laughs> another kilo article. Exactly. Oh, exa- <laughs> exa- the, the, the subjective nature of these things. Look, our media people say, I've heard it said many times, it is not uh, a necessary precondition of free speech to allow misinformation. It is. It surely is. And just as you will, if you have free association, you will have faction. If you have free speech, you will have misinformation. It's just true. People are going to be wrong. People are going to lie. People are going to do all of that stuff. But no one, look, I 100% hundred percent affirm the right of Elon Musk or Google or whomever to do whatever they want to do with their stuff. If Elon Musk wants to have Donald Trump on or not have Donald Trump on, he ought to do whatever he wants to do. It's his company. I don't care. it's his business. but the what we saw in Twitter before Elon Musk of the government through a back door using a national security pretext to say. Let's just work together on how you're going to do this, right? Let's just – we all want good things for the country, don't we? And you can certainly see that there is precedent for it in the past where – and I have been part of this – where you get a scoop, you have a story, but you know that it could be consequential – uh, you know, it could have an effect on a military operation, could have an effect on a, a criminal investigation. So before you publish or before you take it to air, you go to the agency and you say, let's make a deal, right? Like we don't want to we don't want to we don't want to upend something here, but we have this information. How are we going to get this out and do it in a responsible way? So I'm not saying there's no point at which ever any uh, publisher ever has those kinds of conversations. But the misinformation and disinformation standard uh, is an impossible one. Uh, and anytime the government has even a arm's length relationship to it, you are in broad, deep violation of the of the principles of the First Amendment as written, as understood from the beginning,
1: because they knew about this stuff when they wrote it. Fun, quick fact about the Global Disinformation Index, the GDI. Uh, as Robbie Suave at Reason uh, wrote today between writing his three uh, decriminalization articles of the week. Uh, More so kratom. They have they have this board of advisors on their website, including Ann Applebaum. And and Robbie oh, was kind of busting her chops a little bit and like, you know, they're, they're just, say what you will about Ann Applebaum um and uh, her her connection to the, the you know the polish nation um but uh you don't expect her to be a total hack you just expect to disagree with her in an honest way i i at least i do yeah. um and she's like I don't have anything to do with those people. They contacted me once in 2018. Wow. Wow. So, they have her listed like as an advisor or something like that and it's disinformation. It is literal disinformation. I, I, you know, it's funny. The disinformation is.
0: I mean, disinformation is just lying, right? I mean, that's because right. it, it becomes... Intentional lying. It's intentional lying. I mean, it, it becomes essentially the, the, the distinction between the two becomes a defamation case, right? Is that, did you know that you were lying? Because that's the important standard. Because if you don't, and a lot of people don't, I mean, That is therefore misinformation. You don't know you're peddling this stuff, which is basically American politics and global politics, and
2: the scientism that has come into this, right? And the belief that these are that hard rules can be made. And by the way, one of the reasons that it is important for us to find a market-facing, market-driven, aspirationally fair kind of—I'm all for patronage journalism. I. I love the scene in Citizen Kane where uh, Charles Foster Kane's, uh, you know, his trustee comes to see him uh, at the Colorado paper, wherever he is, that he's publishing his first rag and says, you know, do you know that you lost a million dollars last year? And he said, yes, and I expect to lose a million dollars this year and I expect to keep on losing a million dollars every year. And if it keeps up like this, I'll only be able to keep it up for the 100 years, for the next 100 years or so. And I wish that Jeff Bezos, instead of sending his mistress to space, wanted (laughs) – For the Washington Post to be a spectacularly good newspaper,
0: right? I wish I could send my mistress a I would, w- but would you visit her? The uh, no, because uh, they don't have a vehicle to come back from Mars yet.
2: So, uh, but the I wish that Jeff Bezos's midlife crisis was to have said, Washington Post, don't worry about any clickbait hire the best, do the best. And I don't care if it's left or I don't care if it's right or I don't care if it's whatever. So I have no beef with patronage journalism, but it's not sufficient. And the reason it's not sufficient is that without aspirationally fair kind of news, without a place for Americans to go where the news judgment of the people involved matches up with the business model, You are not going to have those important independent voices. There are terrible problems with the crowd-facing post-journalism problems of audience capture. Huge problems. The effulgency of that in the Fox News story is real. And there are problems with patronage journalism. And there are problems with all of that kind of stuff. But they can balance each other out. What can't be balanced out, and this is one that really concerns me, Is there is a push year after year after year to subsidize journalism, to have the federal government get involved in the news business and to start and the uh, this uh, this Frankenstein bill that Amy Klobuchar pushes year after this. You know, this will be the third or fourth year that they come back. And there's some parts of it that are okay. Uh, the allowing, uh, news organizations to basically collectively bargain with the platforms. I, I got no beef. We've got screwed up antitrust laws on this stuff since, you know, the time immemorial make that change. That's fine. But as soon as you get into subsidizing news and the federal government doing it, that leads to the very, very dangerous place. And the appeal of it as you absolutely identify, which is, It sounds right. Who would be against limiting disinformation? Who would be against limiting misinformation? And uh, that's that is not a place that we want to allow the government.
0: And who will be defining those two terms? Exactly. Exactly.
1: Uh, Chris, I I didn't get a chance to ask you this on our C-SPAN talk, uh, but one of the uh, criticisms, probably the criticism that is fair-minded of. Uh, what you did in Air, in Fox in November of 2020 in, with the Arizona call, is that um, you were right, but you were too early, right? With that, like, <laughs> your confidence... And the number was wrong, <laughs> but you called the win correctly. You know what I'm talking about. Like, like
0: this is yeah, this is what I've always called. Barbara Lee was right about Iraq, but for the wrong reasons. Yeah, 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 yeah <laughs> I mean yeah, yeah. you can be right for the
1: wrong reasons, and you were too soon in declaring your rightness, and that's the problem. That was the hubris that came into it. What's your response to that critique, with which you must be well familiar with by now?
2: Well, it's not true. But what if it was right? Let's let's say that it was true. And let's say that somehow Arnon Mishkin and me and the whole nerdquarium uh, just blew it. Uh, And let's say that uh, the Associated Press and their nerdquarium, and they blew it too. Let's say that that happened. Those two independent groups of people with the same data in front of them came to the wrong conclusion independently. What would that have done to anyone how would that have hurt anyone right and i had the um a united states senator call for my firing as being part of a cover-up because we needed to come clean about what was really going on with the arizona call what in the hell do these people think how do you think you make a call right it's, you you can name the senator it's it's okay it's Kevin Kramer. No, well, I, but it's uh, the, the point being there's no, it's just computers and mathematical models and software. It's just data. There's no ballots. I didn't have any ballots under my chair. We were not, the, we do not award any electoral votes. And the reason that Republicans were angry about the time of the call, and, you know, I testified in front of the January 6th committee and got to sit there and listen while 10,000 cameras were shoved up my left nostril. I got to listen to the recorded testimony about what was going on in the White House after we made the call. So I talked about what happened, and then I heard the testimony about what happened in the White House after I made it. Why were they mad? They weren't mad because we were wrong, because we weren't wrong. They were mad because it ruined their narrative. They were angry because they wanted America to go to bed in the wee small hours with a map that's, I don't know, Trump's ahead everywhere. I don't know. And you remember they the Trump pushed that narrative and so did Giuliani over and over again that all these votes just appeared. I don't know what happened. But gee, yeah, I don't know. Philadelphia maybe? Is that you think that's where the magical votes came from? Do you think maybe it was Phoenix? Um so even if we were right for the wrong reason, uh the Barbara Lee even if we were Barbara Lee, uh it wouldn't matter. But here's the best part. We were right for the right reason. We were right because of Rupert Murdoch. We were right because Rupert Murdoch got out of the uh, consortium that did exit polling after the 2016 election, and we had a better mousetrap. And we thought Fox was really excited about how good the mousetrap was, right? They ran promos of us. They facilitated interviews with big-name publications, best-in-class decision desk, and all this stuff. And it was all true. And then we did it, and it just turned out that what we did, they didn't really want, right? They didn't actually want the product that they had made because it didn't work in their competitive advantage. And that was an irony of Rupert Murdoch had the cojones to go out early on this. No, we're going to leave the consortium. We're going to spend a bunch of money. We're going to do it better. We're going to do it differently. And then we gave him what he asked for. And it turns out that's not really what they wanted.
0: So what do you make of the Dominion lawsuit in the sense that, you know, Fox's response is that this is a First Amendment issue. Um, People are free to say that they believe things that are not true. Um, Of course, the response to that is, you know, that, you know, getting all these emails and all these text messages um, in discovery that they knew that it wasn't true. And that that is uh, a decisive piece of information in this. But, you know, I imagine that the Blue Dobbs and Maria Romo or whatever you call her, um, might have actually believed this. Because, um, you know, they're not very bright. Uh, neither of them are, as far as I can tell. But, you know, is this—because, you know, I, this is the thing, that—do you defend uh, a company—this is the Sullivan uh, issue that Ron DeSantis is coming down on at the moment— um, you know, I don't know. I have, I have a, I have sort of mixed feelings on it. I mean, I read this stuff, and I cannot believe that Fox News, that I, sorry to say, that I held in pretty low esteem before. Uh, now I just, I can't even imagine that people actually work in an organization and just didn't up and quit after reading all of this stuff, but. Is it something that you hope is decided one way or another? Or do you believe that, you know, they should have the right to say things that are uh, dumb and not true? I mean, defamatory is obviously a very strange standard, and it's different here than it is in a lot of other places. If I mean, this is the UK. Um, Fox News would be out of business at this point, because it's, you know, it's very, very difficult to defend yourself against this stuff in the UK. It's the opposite. I mean, what do you think of the of the suit in general, and, you know, the right of a news organization to be kind of batshit crazy on things.
2: Well, on the on this case in particular, I'm not going to offer any opinions because I'm a witness and I'm not going to opine on the case because I don't yeah. know enough to whatever. I'm just going to tend to my little row that I, the, the stuff that I do know and try to keep it there. Um, but I will say as a general. So you've
0: point, been deposed in this case.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. OK. Uh, uh, I, you can you can read all about it. Uh, but the I, I will say that as a general proposition, I oppose the weakening of the Sullivan standard, uh, and in in a, in in a strong way. Look, um, it is true that much reckless uh, pr- uh, buck raking, crappy pseudo journalism is uh, carried out under the broad protections of the Sullivan standard. Absolutely the uh, threshold for proving actual malice is extraordinarily high. And of late, a lot of people on the right have started to say that this is a bad thing. And you know what? I understand why they feel the way that they do. I understand why they feel the way they do. I read what Clarence Thomas wrote. I read, Mm -hmm. I listen to what Ron DeSantis talks about. And if the argument is that Republicans or the right are disproportionately victimized by this then it's time to take action and start to hold these companies accountable and blah, 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 blah. I certainly understand why they feel that way. But I also know this. The protections that are required. So in Arizona right now, there is a county official in jail awaiting trial for murdering an investigative reporter who was uh, trying to expose a In Las Vegas. Yeah. Oh, yes. Las Vegas. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, the, in Las Vegas, from uh, the uh, Las Vegas Review Journal, yeah. uh, and for trying to expose corruption in this guy who is a, Cl- a Clark County official, and the bi- these questions that we're dealing with about big organizations nationally and all of that stuff. Um, but this is not the first piece of litigation that I have been a party to <laughs> in my journalistic career. Right, I have been. Named in or called to testify in lawsuits from West Virginia to national level and back and forth and up and down. And I got to say that if you want to protect local journalism and if you want to protect independent journalism, right. they need these protections most assuredly. They most assuredly need these protections because otherwise what's going to happen, right, is that county officials, Ron, the Ron DeSanti, of the future will say, oh, here's this little paper, or here's this radio station, or here's this website. And you know what? There's, by the way, a recent case out of Ohio. The Supreme Court declined to hear about a satire case uh, out of Ohio. A guy got arrested for his Facebook posts. We need – that's the level where those protections are important and necessary because you can easily obliterate dissenting voices uh, in the press if we lose the Sullivan standard. So I understand why it's problematic. I understand why people don't like it, but I do think it's a necessary safeguard for the kind of accountability that can only come from a free and protected press uh, on the local level.
1: You mentioned the January 6th hearings. Uh, As you well know, Tucker Carlson is the recipient of a lot of January 6th footage. You actually write in your book about Tucker Carlson and January 6th, particularly his a uh, very strange interview with Ted Cruz uh, can you refresh oh people gosh. can you refresh people's memory about that and then maybe shoehorn that into your uh, feelings about uh, your feelings or your facts about uh, uh, Tucker holding uh, this video footage and kind of what that says about the uh, the exact media moment that you've been talking about
2: well that's in a chapter where we're talking about how... Well, why am I saying we? Like, I'm a politician. It's fine.
1: Um, it's fine. You that, contain that, multitudes. You ate a that, lot of McRibs, man.
2: That's exactly. Um, I'm I'm eating for three. Uh, the parties filling the role, or the the press filling the role of parties. So, in this sort of t- turned around telescope, we have these very weak parties that will not stand up for themselves. And they are not able to execute the basic functions that parties historically have in the United States, right? For a variety of reasons, McCain-Feingold, Citizens United, we can list all of the reasons that got us to the point where these two parties are hollow shells. And partisanship has never been stronger. Weak parties, strong partisanship, because we don't have to go down that rabbit hole. But when the press is doing the work— that parties are supposed to do primarily that is candidate selection and uh issue vetting. Right, where, where where do we stand on this? Where do we stand on that? Where's the internal policing? So Ted Cruz said that uh, he he described the January sixth uh, rioters uh, as terrorists, which seems pretty obvious, right? They were, it was political. They were trying to intimidate. It was seems like fairly, if, if not textbook terrorism, certainly in the ballpark. And Tucker Carlson brought him on his show and shamed him like a dog. It was, it was excruciating to watch and certainly a measurement of Ted Cruz's willingness to endure shame, right? Like his, his capacity for it is deep. And he took it, and he apologized, and he begged forgiveness, and he was sorry, and Tucker wouldn't let him off the hook, and he kept going, and he kept going. People say that Fox is Republican or that MSNBC is Democratic. That wasn't good for Republicans, right? That was by no means good for Republicans at any level, in any way, or any branch of the Republican Party. But it was fascinating television. It was, a good, it was good ratings. It was, it was that stuff. Uh, As for McCarthy and, you know, Kevin, the, the Ted Cruz now must look at Kevin McCarthy and say, brother, not even I, man, not even I would, would, would eat that frog. Uh, If you are at a, if you are at a place, you know what you, they should release all the footage. Release all the footage, let it all out. We can all go through it, and there can be 10 million narratives that'll all get siloed off, and nobody will listen to anybody else's read of it and all that stuff, and it's fine. But the idea, and this this is the perverse uh, permission structure that this siloing allows for. So when people said, I think it's not appropriate to give one media figure access to these things instead of to everyone, what was the response? Well, Democrats leaked all kind of stuff from the January and the Democrats did this and Adam Schiff one time and you know that that's who was doing. And it's like, okay, I got it. I understand. But if the goal now, if the goal becomes to hold yourself only to the standard of not even the worst conduct of your opponent but of your own imagined standard of your uh, opponent's worst conduct, then we're then we're totally doomed, right? It's a flat spin that you can't break out of because the only standard that you can set for yourself is the worst thing that you can imagine your opponent doing, and even that turns out not to be bad enough.
0: But it's not even that bad, though, isn't it? I, I mean, this is just what people have done for years. I mean, the only for centuries. I mean, the only difference is that it was announced. Publicly, I mean, giving material public, uh, assumed to be public material, uh, to a favored partisan journalist is as old as time. You know, everyone does that, right?
2: This, this is true. This is certainly true. Um, I but, mean, I prefer
0: if it was all just put on a government website, and everybody else, could, everybody could go through it on, the, on their own,
2: you know? right? So, but that's the thing: is giving it as a trophy is problematic, right? When it's something that everybody should have, and you say, and I'm giving it to you. Because you're a you're a favored outlet is not a good thing. The leaking isn't a good thing. None of it's a good thing. Uh I'm just say that the two wrongs don't make a right. I don't think that mm-hmm. the previous leaking makes this okay. I think that the probably the better standard would just be to do just let it out and try and try to move on and and do something more wholesome and and more um less divisive around an already terribly divisive issue
0: can, can i ask you one I mean, we're gonna let you go soon we've had you for a while um, but you know it's it's interesting because you know working at fox and you see you see this pretty up close and not, i mean i've seen this on the road for five years covering trump rallies and you know pe- trump supporters and kind of local republican parties to watch the shift of republican ideology That, you know, we thought that people agreed with when, you know, AEI was writing uh, white papers about monetary policy or about free market stuff and seeing that shift. And it's it's in everything, too. I mean, it's just, you know, not just sort of populism. Look at it in, you know, Ukraine. I mean, you can't, I mean, if you put this in a bag, took all the identifying features off it and said, you know, this is 10 years ago and said, which party was saying this about Russia or about a foreign war, et cetera. You wouldn't know. I mean, it's just, it's, it's all mixed up in that way. And to the point of, I think you made a very good point at the beginning of that. This is not, I mean, this isn't a conservative thing. It's a Republican thing. It's a tribal thing. And it's very easy to get people in your tribe to support a policy when you're repeating it all the time on Fox news, for instance, or on MSNBC. And you, I mean, look, the people on MSNBC used to, you know, not be the McCarthyites. And now the number of people who are called, you know, Russia lovers is you can't even keep track. I mean, you're from Wheeling, West Virginia. You know, a lot about this. Very nice. (laughs)
2: What a nice (laughs) poll,
0: a nice poll. I here have a list of uh, Chris (laughs) Theierwald's family. The
2: Ohio County. Republican Women's Women's, Club McCrew House Hotel. And you know the other great Cold War moment in Wheeling, West Virginia was that after the checkers speech, that Richard Nixon was on a red-hot intercept course to find Dwight David Eisenhower somewhere, anywhere in America, so that he could get the photo of him with Ike to make sure that he was not going to get kicked off of the ticket. And the closest path for intercept was the Wheeling, Ohio County airport. So wow. he like made a beeline, touched the plane down. Oh, hello. Ike, good to see you. So right there. Um, the,
0: uh, and. So I guess the question for that though, is where, where does it go? I mean, it's kind of depressing that you thought that there were two parties that had a dis- two distinct ideologies and you kind of, you know, are more sympathetic to one or another. And at this point, who can tell? The future of the Republican Party for someone, say, who is a Reagan Republican, because you see all these people, Marjorie Taylor Greene is is, is invoking Reagan. I mean, I've heard her do it, despite the fact that it's not the invocation that you would imagine, you know, in the 1990s when Newt Gingrich is doing it in 1994 or something. I mean, Reaganism or that type of conservatism, you know, limited government, um, you know, in, in aggressive foreign policy in a lot of ways— particularly during the Cold War, that's just gone. I mean, what is, as somebody who's covered this stuff for so long and knows the party very well and knows these politics very well, so much so that you can cite, uh, you know, what Nixon did after the checker speech, (laughs) that, like, is this just kind of hopeless for people who are kind of, you know, like the Cato Institute and not Claremont?
2: Cato Institute, noted disinformation. Noted yes. Source of disinformation. <laughs>
0: uh, but the Federal Reserve.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, free Ron Paul. I I think a um, couple things. One, we tend as intellectuals to whatever degree to overstate the importance of ideology in political history generally. Right. Um, if you want to take the example of. The 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 um, parallels with the McCarthy era, how was it that Joe McCarthy got to be Joe McCarthy? Mm. It was because in the midterm elections, he did something very unusual, which is he went out and campaigned against a couple of safe incumbents or incumbents thought to be safe. And when those incumbents lost, the Truman administration changed its uh, Korea policy. Everything changed because the panic was on this guy's got the people on his side. He is a tribune of the people and he is coming, right? And was that true? I don't know, right? Like, I, the, We will never have sufficient public opinion research in order to know what people really think about things on a consistent basis. But we do know this, that if you say – do you stand with your people or those people? People will reflexively say I will stand, you know, in the book I talk about fundamental attribution effect, hostile media effect and the social psychological phenomenon of, you know, human beings are our superpower is coalitional. Our ability to build coalitions with people who we have never met and who we do not know and to envision to to build uh, to work on cathedrals that we will never live to see completed, right? This is an amazing thing. But that coalitional strength comes with a serious cost, which is the the quickest way to make a coalition is unified and hatred against other people. So number one, I think a lot of – we we are prone to think that ideology drives faction more than faction, more than we put the label on it after the fact, right? I think a lot of it is post-facto. Um, If we talk about how Reagan built his coalition, you have the last moment, you have the sort of the last gasp of the Dixiecrats uh, combined with uh, the uh, blue collar, whether you want to call them Buchananite or whether these were um, uh, uh, Wallace voters or whatever they are, uh, blue collar whites. And then you uh, that was finally able to square the circle with the country club Republicans, that they could finally come up with that coalition the Reaganism that won, right, it, it is fortunate for Reagan and for Republicans that what he did worked right and that the tax program worked and that the deregulation worked and that we won the Cold War. And that was all very good. Um, but the people who are voting for Ronald Reagan weren't probably thinking deeply, not the persuadable voters were not thinking deeply about supply side economics. Mm-hmm. So there's that part. Then we think about Donald Trump. We think about the same voters who voted for uh, Barack Obama and Donald Trump. Millions of Americans who voted for Barack Obama and Donald Trump. They did not fundamentally change. They did not become racist. They did not whatever. The the thing I just always try to bear in mind when I do my work is there are a bunch of people who will always vote for a Republican and a bunch of people who always vote for a Democrat, and they will always figure out a way to rationalize why that was the correct thing to do, Right no matter what. Um, These are always Democrats and always Republicans. The thing that makes American politics uh, self-correcting and the thing that makes American politics work is that the persuadable voters are the least ideological voters. So Barack Obama won a commanding victory in 2008 for a lot of reasons. The Iraq War, Sarah Palin, blah, 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 blah. But ultimately, he won because people liked him right? He ultimately won because people trusted and liked him. Americans will vote for very liberal people. They'll vote for very conservative people, but they always are voting for a person, those persuadable voters. put personality, they have low confidence in politicians to tell the truth. They have low confidence in politicians to do the things that they say they're going to do. So they pick the people. Hillary Clinton lost on the most important question in every election cycle, which is cares about voters like me. And she lost about it. She lost Mm -hmm. it to the host of The Celebrity Apprentice. So what will here's what here's (laughs) what will happen is that at some point the Republicans are going to take a real beating. Right. And 2022 should have been enough, but they can't quite decide whether or not it was sufficient to take the lesson. Right. And a big part of what Donald Trump stole from Republicans was the ability to do the correct normal thing and say, okay, we tried that. That didn't work. And that's what they did after 2012. Okay, that didn't work. We got to do something different. And boy, did they ever. But he denied them that opportunity because they were not able to say publicly out of their own cravenness, but they were not able to say publicly, it's over. That didn't work. We're moving on. And at some point, the Republicans will take a beating. And they'll say why, and then they will move on. And then we'll slap a name on the next thing and say that they won because of those ideas. So the battle for ideas, the the importance of the battle for ideas and the importance of white papers at AEI and of all of that stuff is that you hope you get lucky, right? <laughs> you, you hope that the electoral tumblers land in the correct way so that the person who gets elected is equipped to do good while they're in there. Uh, and that's the hope. But I think the rest of it is... A lot more about personality and a mm. lot more about voter social psychology than i than I ever want to really admit
0: i mean if it, if it 's about ideology in any way, now is the time a perfect time for Republicans to spring back to where they were before post covid um, with the economy the way it has been. I mean Ron DeSantis is you know people say well he's a, you know a slicker version of Trump, well, not really. Because he's more like a conventional Republican in so many ways, when it comes to, particularly when it comes to economic policy. So, um, but Chris, we've kept you, uh, Matt, you have anything you want to, I mean, you, yeah. you did two hours, five, you did like a five hour stretch with him and Brian Lamb at a, no, like, no, it was he, a quick, it was a brisk
1: hour, brisker than, than this, right. but uh, wasn't as late as night. Uh, no, it's <laughs> funny that you mentioned in 2012, and we'll leave you this uh, kind of uh, thing to chew on. Um, and, uh, and uh, Donald Trump, I always find it fascinating. Uh, it's kind of lost the, the memory hole, but right after the election in 2012, Donald Trump slammed Mitt Romney for his maniacal anti-immigration positions. Um, like Donald Trump was for a half a second. He was there with the autopsy uh, of the Republican Post 2012 autopsy. Like we got to be nicer to immigrants. And then I think he s- saw his opportunity part of uh, my... And said uh,
0: Pat Buchanan was a Nazi, too, by the way, which is why he couldn't why have he the Reform the Party ticket.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah, he couldn't be there because, yeah. you know, it, it was too, too many Nazis. <laughs> he Love was at a Pat.
0: John Demenuk fundraiser.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so Suzanne Scott at, uh, uh, in one of these, uh, I think, text messages or emails, um, this is in the early days after the election, and I think this is in response to Jackie Heinrich thing, um, she was basically arguing against doing those types of truth squad, kind of Trump wrong bits saying that you can't give the crazies an inch right now, for which she meant um, Fox audience who was threatening to go to uh, you know, Newsmax, oh, oh, and on, who knows what, but like who are <laughs> oh defecting. <no. laughs> uh, they, they all bleed after a while. Um, it all goes to a place called Fair. There's always something new called Fair. Um, <laughs> the but reasonable but she uh, was worried about the crazies here's a a thing that people who I can even imagine listening to right now and they like the trajectory of what they're you're saying but also like dude you worked at fox come on you didn't know what people who are like that are are apt to say is that Republicans, uniquely at this moment, asymmetrically at this moment, have a crazies problem. They are more scared of their crazies. The crazies have more sway in the party. The people who are around who might be brave aren't. They are death eaters, or whatever. Read another book. I realize, um, but like they—they they lack their own kind of thing because the crazies are more important, more functional uh, to the party, fundamental to the party than whatever is happening on the Democratic Party right now. Is that? Do you think that, or what's your response to that?
2: Well, I think. Uh, sure. I mean, look, I, I. I absolutely acknowledge that I'm sure that I could have done, done better and been better in my own life. And, uh, I'm sure that's true. What's <laughs> wasn't where I was going with that, but well, go but, on. No, I mean like, you know, I don't, the, 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 um, you know, boiling, boiling frogs, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But here's the problem with that kind of thinking, right? The problem with that kind of thinking is that it excuses people from policing their own side, right? So if what you say is that Fox, I I went on uh, MSNBC uh, after I got fired and uh, I can't remember the host name, um, Chris Hayes, basically wanted to argue with me and say that he was a better journalist than Sean Hannity. And it's like, okay, congratulations, bro. You've done it. You have, you, you're a better journalist than Sean Hannity and the, that can't be good enough. So I, when I talk about, you know, I, I, have done interviews where I, you know, I talk about what's wrong with the 1619 project, uh, and how that's not dissimilar to what Tucker Carlson said about January 6th, uh, in this way, which is if you tell people things that are really damaging, about our understanding of America and the American project. If you say these things, you can say that you're brave and that you are a bold, you're, you're confronting these bad people, whether they be racists or whether they be black helicopter pilots or whatever, you know, the deep state that you're confronting these bad people and come in the guise of bravery, but you're not being brave at all because you're telling people what they want to hear and you're being constantly affirmed and given millions of dollars or awards or whatever else, and everybody goes home and feels very satisfied that, yes, we have done the right thing, we have done a good job because we have been brave in the face of the bad people. My plea is for people to think more about how to remedy what is wrong with where they are and less about what the other people are. If you do not like... What is on Fox News, do not watch Fox News. If you do not like what is on MSNBC, do not watch MSNBC. Do whatever you want to do. Consume whatever you want to do. But the amount of time that people spend obsessing over what strangers are talking about and doing about is not healthy, and it keeps them from addressing normal, basic things on their own side. Both parties are very afraid, both the left and the right are very afraid to talk about things that are wrong. You can talk about – and look, I don't want to do like an abacus like, well, it's this many on this side and that many on that side. I'm certainly willing to accept the supposition that the Republican Party and the American right is far more dysfunctional and far more divided against itself in this crazy fratricidal murder than the left is. It is it is considerably more intense, and it's a lot weirder on the right right now. That's for sure. But I would point to what happened around defund the police, Right. When we say we defund the police, we mean defund the police. Actually, what we meant was when we said defund the police, we meant increased police funding. And the inability to speak to people who you feel have a strong moral case, and by the way, who are important voters in your coalition, to say to them, well, you know, it's complicated and I hear you. And again, I just want to come back to that point. I know why Joe Biden was in an awkward position with Democrats in the summer of 2020, with African-American voters, with Black Lives Matter movement. I understand the difficulty of his position because his job is to try to get elected. I'm here talking about what, as journalists, we owe and what we have to do. And what that means is we have to tell the truth even when it is bad for the party that we like more than the other party. We have to, we have to tell the truth even when it's bad for business, even when you get fired, even when your ratings go down, even when whatever else happens. The, to, to leave you with a, a one more hillbilly aphorism, um, but it's something my father used to say, and I really hold it dear, which is, no pun intended, the time to decide whether or not you want to kill a deer is before you go hunting, right? If you, if you wait to make that choice when you have the deer in your sights, it's too late. Right? You have to make up your mind. Are you a newsman or a newswoman before you undertake this work? If you wait until you get to the end, you will rationalize your way out of telling the truth. You will rationalize your way out of doing the right things. So you have to set, you know, I'm a great believer that opinions are luxury items. You shouldn't have more than you could afford, but you got to have some. And you have to have some basic principles that you're not going to betray. And you have to have those before you set out. And if you don't do that, you will end up in the soup and you will end up not. Meeting your basic requirements and what you owe the Constitution and what you owe the people who protected it and what you owe your audience,
0: Chris Thayer. Well, we need to have you come back uh, because you're a clever man. I didn't I did notice. <laughs> Matt, Matt said otherwise. The but learned you're, homunculus. That's yeah. Right. You're you're too hot for porn. You're too smart for Fox. Uh, but How you're here on the Fifth Column and <laughs> to our dear listeners who buy lots of books from our guests. So you should notice a massive bump on Broken News, Why the Media Rage Machine Divides America and How to Fight Back, published by Hachette, or Hachette Imprint, I think, right? Yep, Center um, Street. Center Street. So buy that book um, and uh, look forward to, to Chris Thierwald coming back to the fifth column. Thanks, It was Chris. a pleasure, guys. Thanks so Thanks, much, appreciate Chris. It. We, 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 we know of new methods right. of attack.
1: We, uh, you guys miss a lot of really good off-camera, uh, off Oh, that's when
0: it all happens. It's when uh, it all happens. That's when he from? gave his own deposition to the fifth column. <laughs> oh, that's pretty interesting.
1: And uh, Chris Tywald, right? Yeah,
0: people, I, uh, smart guy.
1: I was, I, yeah, I, I, I knew Chris from uh, the Fox Building. Um, you, you, you quickly gravitate when you're in there with just people who are smart and funny and and like sane. ground sane and like gra- and like obviously good at what they do. He would come on. Uh, Kennedy's show, I think he came on the independence as well and just throw anything at him and he rolls with it pretty well, but obviously knows what he's doing. I mean, he was their equivalent after a fashion of Kornacki, right? Like, their, yeah, yeah, their, yeah. He
0: reminds me of Stephen away.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm, they just, I would not want to get them in the same room at the same time. Cause that would just would be too weird. Too much really bad dressing. <laughs> be just like two dudes, like quaffing McRibs <laughs> getting on their, like. <laughs> their clip on ties and their.
0: <laughs> I just wanted him to do that in his West Virginia accent. Well, when you get a McRib and sit on the hood of your car, I know we're not allowed to talk about people when they're gone, but we're talking in a very nice way.
1: Very uh, nice way. No, he was great. Like, I, my, the, the C SPAN book notes interview. Now, I like, I really like doing those things, including with people mm-hmm. who I don't find nearly as smart or as engaging as Chris Dyerwald, which is most of the people that I've <laughs> interviewed on that. But it's a fun thing, and the audience is fun too. But I, you know, I have a, my bookshelf down here is not necessarily as filled with comedy and Nazi books as Moynihan's, but there's a couple of, of groaning shelves with media uh criticism books because when i actually first started writing for reason even before i was an employee i had basically a monthly media column i wrote about the media a lot for the national post in canada and 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 basically every stop there's an argument that you know new journalism of the 60s variety like starts with media criticism and then kind of goes on from there i mean fox itself it was a it's a it's a creature the media criticism is the first thing that you do at AM talk radio as well. Uh, all weeklies, all of these things are like that. And I'm was always kind of interested in it. And as such, I have all these really terrible books because with almost no exceptions, they're really awful. Uh, and we talked about, um, some of that with the washington post guys uh guy uh whose name i thankfully i'm just blanking on now um but uh, uh that we talked about a couple of episodes ago i have all of these things and so i got chris's book and it's like oh god i uh, like chris but here's another you know broken news and, and the subhead's got rage machine i'm like oh no um and it's actually really- yeah it's
0: like they're sort of like headlines of of your own articles that you always have to remind people that those are written in committee and not uh, by you. Uh, I try to write
1: them all, always do, but it's not always easy to do it. But uh, yeah, it's it, the Rage Machine is not the tone of the book. The book is really uh, ecumenical, and it's not a kiss and tell about Fox. He he talks about it because it's it's relevant, and he talks you know briefly. Um, to the point about his own personal thing, but it's really not about that. And uh, about half of the proscriptive part really is, as he mentioned tonight, about what you can do, the news consumer. Like it, like you know, perestroika begins in the home. Um, mm-hmm. so does uh, like quality news consumption and diets it is really a demand thing and that is one thing that really separates him from all the margaret sullivans of the world and a lot of those, you know tedious uh people who you know are always uh, uh, complaining about both sidesism and they just want to adjective their way out of our our uh, current populist moment and chris is more old school but he also Uh, Has an appreciation that this is demand driven. This is a lot of the 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 thing that take away from the Dominion stuff. That's crazy is just the amount of pure audience capture and audience terror there is, and it's really unseemly. Mm -hmm. Really unseemly. Yeah, I mean
0: the the headline in the New York Times, which is probably not what it's would, would, would would you would have guessed by listening to what we just. Uh, said on this podcast is, uh, was something like, uh, you know, Fox tries to break with Trump, but finds it difficult or something like that. That was mm-hmm. the, that was the instinct of it because you do get down in the, into the nitty gritty and it's like, you know, all these poll quotes that come out. Um, as you pointed out, Matt, in our text chain that the Rupert Murdoch saying, yeah, we, we peddled this stuff on air, but he does actually in that exchange keep on saying, no, it was not Fox. Fox did not. It was you not know, an
1: endorsement. Like, it was not an endorsement. The, the headlines are, of, are all like Fox, you know, Murdoch admits that uh, Fox endorsed the crazy Jan six stuff. And he, he was right to con- continuously say, no, there's not an, end- we don't do endorsements. Uh, yeah, but there uh, were
0: people on. Yeah. Yeah. It might seem like a distinction without a difference, but it does matter. Um, the one thing I did want to talk about before we left, because it'll, it'll be old news. I mean, it's not old news because it never really goes away is the, covid uh assessment from the department of energy um there's an update to that uh which is christopher ray the fbi director uh today tonight i think it was wall street journal tonight uh confirmed that the fbi had determined that covid uh started as uh from a lab leak in wuhan and that's the FBI's
1: assessment. Like, confirmed or, like, have, have confirmed a that reasonable that that was, confidence level or something?
0: So, so FBI director says, COVID pandemic likely caused by Chinese lab mm-hmm. leak. Christopher Ray provides first public confirmation of Bureau's classified assessment of suspected laboratory incident. That's and, you know, a lot was made of their previous reporting um, that it was low confidence, right? And, I, you know, people like Stephen Colbert who um, is a guy, if you don't know him, he has a TV show and he once used to be a comedian. Uh, now he has a political show on at night that periodically has celebrities show up and talk about movies. But uh, he went on a thing like, oh, it's like, uh, you know, getting your this from the nuclear energy. Like, it's just like, uh, why is the from department? The DMV. Yeah, like, it's like, why does the Department of Energy blah, blah, blah? Well, it's, you know... The Biden administration asked them to um <laughs> he said that happened
1: he said the phrase, and this is always the tell that both you're not funny and you're not uh adding anything uh stay in your lane
0: yeah that's yeah. I mean you're a comedian yeah. and you're telling people to stay in your lane. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All right. Maybe you didn't think about that before you wrote it, but there's that. Yeah. It's style, yeah right? Maybe it's But so that you know, the low confidence thing. I mean, they don't come out with these things for nothing. I mean, there's there's a lot of hedges they put in this. Um, but there seems to be an emerging consensus from a lot of government. And imagine they are privy to a lot of stuff that we are not privy to. And I just thought it was important to mention because of what we're talking about with Chris and about the trust that people have in the media. And, you know, a lot of that is partisan, right? And, and you know, before there was cable news, before there was the internet, before there was Twitter, it was almost inevitable that technology was going to catch up and this was going to happen, the exact result was going to happen, because that news was very much coming from one perspective. And there was, you know, firing line. On PBS, and then you'd have a couple of voices here and there in editorial pages, and some uh, papers were conservative. But on television, and things like that, it was it was you know pretty much heavily weighted in one direction. Um, so I think there's, there's there's a lot of kind of residual feeling that people have that the media is left wing and the media is loves Democrats, etc. So I don't trust them. I think that the new version of that um, definitely is uh, you know fiery, but mostly peaceful, and it is definitely COVID. Uh, when you re- when I saw that headline, I said, "Well, there's nothing surprising about that." Um, John Stewart said the other day, by the way, um, on a, on his podcast that he does, um, but that's associated with his really bad television show, that when he went on Colbert and said, "Hey, it's just kind of obvious that it came from the lab that was the Wuhan coronavirus lab." <laughs> it's like the name of the building, which is and, like
1: nine months ago or so, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: and. Colbert, who is so captured by partisanship at this point, because it's how he makes his money and how he keeps whatever dwindling audience he has, said, you sound like Senator Ron Johnson. Oh, I mean, my God. I, I, it's amazing. Like, you sound like a Republican, because you're saying it does kind of make sense that this would have lead from a lab. Make, makes a, a certain amount of sense, right? And he said, you know, it was like being, this was like yesterday, he said it was, it was like being called a racist. They, they, he said he was called alt-right and far-right. right and far right uh, just for saying this, right? When you go back and look at the coverage, and I did a little Google dive, and some people put together some some uh, Twitter threads with some headlines. I mean, these are not opinion pieces. Um, you know, because of what Chris was saying in this kind of moral imperative people had in, in the Trump years to report in a particular way, uh, as he was saying that the New York Times media columnist said that we have to treat this differently. Yeah. And saying that Molly Jong-Fast, a former guest on the show, was saying that you have to treat DeSantis differently. That was the without evidence thing. But when it came to COVID, they were primed for it. They've been they've been writing this way for so long. They had been in the business of warning their customers, their consumers, that there was misinformation all around them, and now it was about science. And you know who's very bad at science? Republicans who've been denying climate change, etc. So the headline that I, of course, I remembered was the Tom Cotton headline, um, which they stealthily edited at the Washington Post. But it was a news story that Tom Cotton, you know, repeats debunked conspiracy theory about coronavirus leaking from a lab. Debunked? There are a lot of those. Debunked. Of, debunked. I mean, what do they know? Uh, nothing. I mean, imagine in 2003, after Colin Powell's performance in front of the United Nations... That, uh, you know, Noam Chomsky repeats debunked lies about Iraq's nuclear weapons program. I and mean, how do you know? Well, the guy up there told me and he was holding a vial in his hand and he said, that's all it takes to blow up the world.
1: And the flip side of this is uh, precisely why I care to any degree about the Hunter Biden laptop story. Maybe there's some corruption in there and it's always grotesque to watch family members of Congress people in addition to Congress people getting rich um but mm-hmm. it was the way that that story and Glenn Greenwald has been been just as usual an absolute you know Gila monster about this reminding people how uh quickly and thoroughly this was called Russian disinformation by people mm-hmm. like oh we know we have you know, we have this uh, uh, August uh, organization that has, that has this classic, you know, this m- meets all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation immediately. Like he had no evidence. They had no evidence for it at the time. And this has come out in some of the Facebook files and Twitter file stuff. Um, uh, but they'll go immediately to that without actually having <laughs> the evidence to cite a phrase. And um, and this is why these moments are so infuriating. And he also realized and someone put uh uh mentioned this on social media four or five days ago and I didn't see the title of the book but there was a copy of a uh, there's a book that came out talking uh, retrospectively about the satanic panic of the 80s and 90s mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which was huge. huge i mean this yeah. is this is Ruined when you, you, lives, could, so yeah, you yeah. could have repressed memory of five year olds talking about how these satanic you know child care people uh did horrible sexual abuse and they would send you know send people to prison for tens and twenties of years. And it's all, we all recognize that that was a moral panic and really shitty science and all naming it for the children. And apparently the book that is about that, that I can't cite um, talked a lot about, did the people who propagated that in real time and who were influential in real time, did they acknowledge their error and, and, and admit their mistake and say, I'm sorry. No, they goddamn did not. Um, And that is, I'm afraid what we're going to see and how you see reactions to the COVID lab leak stuff, certainly to the masking study that came out, the Cochrane Review study that came out, um, uh, you know, doing the best possible international uh, gold standard study of study type of things um, to the best of their degree of knowledge negligible Im, unmeasurable impact of wearing masks as opposed to not there's a random control uh trials which is what you need in in actual things and they they lumped them all together and and compared them and just nothing and the people who uh you know would call a mask critic a denier. Um, where do you go for your apology for this stuff? And they're not ready to apologize. They're like, Oh, that study was, that study was crap. The Cochrane review, which they've heard of, you know, I've heard of only recently myself, but I read people who are actually good journalists like Jacob Solomon, John Tierney describe to
0: me what these things mean. And well, it was uh, like MSNBC, by the way, did, had a headline and in the headline on the, uh, department of energy, uh, study that was leaked um had a low level of confidence in the headline and it it seemed like the existence of the piece to say no 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 don't no we're still not okay with this lab leak stuff um and why why would you not want to be instinctually on the side of something that makes complete sense i mean it's you know it seems obvious to anyone who's paying attention is it because you you know want to believe the chinese communist party Uh, the um, sort of occasionally genocidal Chinese Communist Party, um, who, by the way, we were praising in the first— remember this, we were praising in the first months after— uh, the COVID outbreak became a real thing for everyone before the lockdown. Saying they're handling it in an incredible way, and I remember and
1: the New York Times by we uh, that, that includes Donald Trump. By the way, like, Donald Trump, of course, yeah. yeah.
0: And I mean, he loves authoritarian responses to things, and you know, he says, you know, if I if I had the power of you, Kim Jong Un, I'd I'd be very happy. But um, and you know, I I remember them, the New York Times reporting that China had you know no no cases, no deaths in the past like two weeks or something. This was like 2021. And I was like, how the fuck? We talked about it in the show at the time. Yeah. How are you doing this? But you know, this is the poison of the Donald Trump years and how it deranged people in, in so many ways that there's a editorial, an opinion piece in the New York times today from Anna Marie Cox saying, you know, Hunter Biden has some explaining to do. Um, now the entire thing. I mean, it's probably nine hundred words. If you took out all the throat clearing about the quote unquote far right, you'd probably be left with two hundred words because she has to tell all of her readers, no, 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 I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm the son of good, I'm the son of good. But isn't it a little unseemly that this guy has this kind of privilege and influence and is, you know influence peddling on his dad's name? Blah blah blah. Um, yeah, it is. It is an interesting piece. I doesn't motivate me i'm i'm not you know reporting about it i'm not going after stories every day looking for it i think of it as a kind of gross media story but you know to even say that but during the COVID stuff was to say anything that you thought might align you with the bad guys meant that you would dismiss evidence of things that ruined people's lives you know i thought sweden would be a great example because a social democratic government it's very, very, very government-friendly. Um, if you look for a solution in Sweden, you initially look to the government. If the government can't achieve it, then you look elsewhere. And they looked elsewhere. And Anders Tegnell, the guy who was the public health guy, um, controversial at the time, but the important thing was schools and keeping kids in schools and the rest of it. And what happened? Well, nothing. Um, but we couldn't do that here. The teachers' unions wouldn't do it, etc. Matt has talked about this ad infinitum, and we won't go into it again, but... Um, how about an acknowledgement that you were blinded by ideology? And it wasn't direct ideology. It wasn't something that I am saying this because, you know, when I say this, it's clear that I'm I'm a MAGA guy. It was kind of regional. You were in the in the universe, in the region, in the same zip code as things that Donald Trump and his merry band of morons were saying, and so therefore we shouldn't say it at all. Um, these things coming out from uh, government uh, institutions and and departments that are under the firm control of Joe Biden. <laughs> and in the FBI's case, if you listen to Republicans, a essentially an anti-Republican outfit. I don't believe that, but that's what Republicans think. And they're coming down and saying, look, yeah, lab leak is—why is this important? Well, it's important to know where these things start, of course, and prevent them from happening in the future. But more than anything, it's important to point out that not only we were we gripped by a lack of knowledge, which is understandable. It's why you're washing your Cheerios. And that stuff goes, you know, washing your hands doesn't do anything. That's not how we were getting this. It took a while for us to figure that out. But more than anything, it's it's we need to know this stuff to realize that the people who have your good intentions at heart, supposedly, who are the purveyors of truth, who's the, who the ones who are believe in science. And science said, I mean, look, you can find, I found so many things. The science said that it couldn't possibly have come from a lag. We've looked at it under a microscope and that micro, microscope said no way. Uh, apparently the FBI doesn't have microscopes, nor does the Department of Energy.
1: I tend to think uh, that the, brief fad for uh so-called explanatory journalism which was the alleged uh uh reason for the season of uh, vox when it first Mm -hmm. started um and this is idea that you know we're just you know sure we might have ideological priors but we're really just sort of like looking for technocratic truths out there it didn't turn out to be uh the explanations of truth, or like here's the tools from which you could arrive at your own truth uh, that might dis, you know you might disagree with the journalist or whoever is putting this together, but it gives you the the tools. Here's where you yeah. here's where you start looking to answer the questions um, that it's more it was explaining how you should feel about it. And mm-hmm. uh, I uh, recommend people look at the last few days of Nate Silver's Twitter feed, the uh, 538 guy. Um, he's been going on a bit of a rampage about this with the lab leak stuff um, with righteous fury against those who very uh, confidently and sneeringly dismissed everyone and not just dismissed them, but contributed to the atmosphere and sometimes the policies from which people who said this kind of stuff were banished from polite society or kicked off platforms uh, with certitude. Um, and he's really mad about this. Look at the reactions that he's that he's got from people um people saying look uh this is like you know television hosts media uh journalists uh saying well you know it, it is understandable because you didn't want to give the far right and these you know all these sort of racist yahoos uh ammunition so this is kind of where the spirit is coming from. and they're sort of justifying it to this day and you're right which by the, the way
0: is how you um how you give ballast to the far right because, because if you say like we don't want to say these things because they're saying and the, and the things that they're saying, broken clock or whatever happen to be right, people say, well, you know, those guys have, they have been trustworthy and you haven't been um, coming down on the same side as people you don't like can sometimes be beneficial in neutralizing the people that you don't like. Yep. So, anyway, all right. Well, we should bounce out of here and, and we got a, we got a good uh, long one uh, without Camille. We don't need him. We do not oh, I'm sorry, who? need him i'm i don't i um i don't know he's yeah. a, a bill cosby's uh wife camille <laughs> <laughs> my wife camille um have you i don't think i ever made that comparison before no No All right, well needed to be gone yeah, well that was fun steierwald was fun we're gonna be uh camille is actually in in the city um
1: yeah we should do uh, the next couple
0: of days we should we're gonna do some stuff in person
1: yeah, anything, anything but so have better. a anything would have a meeting together.
0: No, uh, no we don't have a meeting. We don't have a meeting. The wheels are coming off this motherfucker, and nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, this is a, this uh, isn't a paid one. Uh, yeah, no, anyways, uh, no. Uh, no, I gotta. I have. I have to. I have to be in the city. I have to. And by the way, um, for Livia's um gymnastics coach, uh, one of her coaches, who's the nicest person in the world, who does everything. Under the sun for my daughter and spends more time with her than anyone who's just a fantastic person. Is also an obsessive Madonna fan. She's huh? probably like early 50s, I would guess. Like since she was a kid, like she came to America because of Madonna. Um, yes. Because she loved Madonna, which I think is hilarious. But uh, uh, my daughter told me the other day that Madonna has a, there's a concert, Madonna concert in, I guess, at MSG in New York. Oh. Um, and the tickets are like eight grand or something something crazy uh they're all like not like even the nosebleeds are crazy expensive and um, um she's like can, can we get her tickets and i was like no they're so expensive are you kidding me so if anyone uh, out there has a couple of spare madonna tickets oh nice just gonna say I, this is for a woman who's awesome um and uh is does great things for my or if you just know where to get them i don't know no. i don't know anybody in madonna's camp that's not my universe so if anyone, we got some, uh, we got some record industry people. Yeah, we have we have some record industry people. So if you know any know any people, it would be it would be great. So I'm trying yeah. to get trying to get because uh, my daughter's bothering me about it. She's like, well, we, let's let's it's something. weird how like, we baby. we
1: know andrew schultz and we didn't get any tickets to his radio city thing he
0: said he'd give me some but i just felt bad because uh, he yeah, recorded yeah, that video yeah. did you see that video he recorded on yeah well that was a way to, to keep us off the train <laughs> exactly exactly he posted a video on his instagram of like uh, his friends being like yo you got some tickets and i was yeah. and i saw him at the cellar i ran into him at the cellar and he was like yeah man i'll get some tickets and then i felt bad after watching that of asking him so so but we can see uh, the thing about Andrew is you just say when are you going to be at the cellar next and, and go down and see him there and then we'll yeah. tip you guys off if you want to come down so. alright alright okay we, we know of new methods of attack.